0: Amen, I am thrilled that you're here. And I wanna ask if you would to take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to 1 John chapter two for this morning's message and for our time together today. 1 John chapter two. We have been, prior to Easter, for almost a month now in a sermon series entitled, More Than a Name. More Than a Name. And throughout this study, what we're doing is we're studying God's word, the book of 1 John, where we're understanding and we're being reminded that being a Christian is more than just a name. It's more than just a title. We live in a country today that was founded as a Christian nation upon Christian values, and for that reason, there are many people in our country today that would say, yes, I am indeed a Christian. In fact, 65% of the population in America today self-identify as saying, yes, I am a Christian. If you look in the valley, in this area, the Shenandoah Valley, Rockingham County, Augusta County, this area of Virginia, you would find an even higher percentage of people that would say, yes, I am indeed a Christian. And we do that for many reasons. Sometimes we call ourselves a Christian because of our our upbringing. Our grandparents were Christians and we went to church on special occasions. Maybe we were baptized as a baby or something and we'd say, yes, I am a Christian because of these things in my life. Sometimes we say we're Christians because, frankly, we have a lot of good family values. And certainly in the context of our culture, we'd say, well, you know, we've got a a good work ethic and we care about our family. And there's even, in the context of the South even, there's this kind of like this moral code of things that are right and that are wrong. And, And so for all those reasons, even politically sometimes, that we're conservative, some of us would look and say, yes, I am a Christian. But I want to remind us today that being a Christian is far more than just a name. In fact, the word Christian means belonging to, relating to, or resembling Christ. Belonging to, relating to, or resembling Christ. In other words, the name Christian has nothing to do with the culture that you grew up in. It has nothing to do with the moral code that you might have in your life. It has nothing to do with your grandfather's faith or, faith or even your political leanings. No, the fact is that being a Christian is all about whether you belong to Jesus or in relationship with Jesus and resemble Jesus to the world around you. It's interesting to note that in the Bible, in the book of Acts, the very first time that we see the name Christian used, it was not used by a Christian at all. In fact, the title Christian did not even, it was not originated within the church. The word Christian happened in Antioch when the unbelieving world was looking at those who were following Jesus. They were looking at those who professed to believe in Jesus. And as the watching world saw their love for one another, saw the way they served one another saw the way they studied God's word as the watching world saw this group of individuals who were once living one way and now they believed in Jesus and they're living a totally different way. When they saw the radical change that Jesus Christ brought to their life, they looked at them and said, surely they are Christians. They belong to Jesus. They're in relationship with Jesus. They even resemble him to the world around us. So the question I'm asking you today really is this. Not simply do you call yourself a Christian, but really the question is, Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you following Jesus and living for him to the extent that the watching world can look at you and say, they're in relationship with Jesus, they belong to Jesus, and they look like Jesus in the world today? Well, to help us kind of understand and to really identify in our life whether or not we're truly a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you a very simple question. Now remember, here in the book of 1 John, John has been asking us a series of questions. They're kind of like a series of exams or tests. I realize, students, Sunday's probably your day off, but there's a little test that we're going to have here today because John's asking us a question to examine in our life. Now it's a simple question, but the answer is profound because your answer to this question will largely and likely reveal where you stand in your relationship with God. Here's the question, pretty simple. It's a popular question of a song. Who do you love? Who do you love? Now, I'm not asking you what the name of your spouse is. I'm not asking you the name of your significant other. I'm not asking you the name of the person that you wish loved you back, okay? I'm asking you in the context of 1 John 2, who or what. Do you love? This morning, I want you to, if you're able to do so, stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, and I want to preach to you on the subject, loving and living for the Lord. Loving and living for the Lord. Three verses, here's what the Bible says. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust. but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Loving and living for the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this moment that we have together today. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts and lives loud and clear. Lord, that is a simple question. Who do we love? God, I pray today that if we do not love you above anything and everything else, that you would reveal it in our hearts and lives. God, if we have substituted that and replaced loving you with instead loving the world, I pray today that you would expose it in our life, that we would repent of it and we would turn to you and we would leave here with the absolute assurance that we love you supremely and that our lives are being lived for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Loving and living for the Lord. You know, as we open this pastor scripture today, it is very simple and yet it's very loud and clear that John is giving us a direct contrast between loving the world or loving the Lord. Living for the world or living for the Lord. There are many, no doubt, throughout the ages, and many even still today who try to do both. Oh, I love the Lord, I worship Jesus, I go to church, my grandfather was a preacher, whatever the case would be. And then at the same time, they're loving the world by their passions, by their pursuits, by the various things of their life. They try to do both. But the fact of the matter is today, you can't love the world and still love the Lord because the world and the Lord are directly opposed to one another, One of the things that confuses this understanding of who we love is the fact in our culture we use the word love to describe a million different things. Let me illustrate that. For example, you could invite uh, someone out, let's say it's your spouse or it's a a significant other if you're in a dating relationship and you invite them to go with you to a ball game and you get in your vehicle and you could be driving down the road and maybe you got a nice vehicle and it's comfortable and and you might think about this car you're like man I I really love this car this is a great car it's been dependable and it's comfortable and all those things and you drive to the sporting event you get out of the vehicle you walk into the stadium you look at the field and you see your team take the field and there's a sense of pride and you might look and say man I love this team this team is so good about halfway through the game you start to get a little bit hungry so you go over to the concession stands and you order the biggest hot dog with chili that you can find because you want a lot of heartburn later in the day and so you begin to eat it and you might think man this thing is so good I love this hot dog and then as the game comes to a close you go over to the souvenir shop and finally you find the jersey or the hat you've been looking for for forever and you're like man that is sweet that's got the perfect style I love this thing and you put it on and you drive home and finally as the day comes to a close you look over over at your spouse or significant other you give them a big kiss on the cheek or a big kiss on the lips and you say sweetheart I sure do love you how in the world can we in the English language use the same word to describe a hot dog as we do our spouse or significant other right it's totally crazy but but the fact of the matter is today what God is wanting us to see is love is far more than just an emotion It's more than just a feeling. It's more than just the warm and fuzzies or the way you get excited about something. Love ultimately is an action. It's an action of giving of oneself. It's an action of devotion. It's an action even of sacrifice. That's why the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's showing us that God's love was an action. It was an action of sacrifice as he was giving his son for us. So the question is this. Do you love the world or do you love the Lord, And what I submit to you this morning is this. If you will examine what you are devoted to, how are you, you are spending your time, your effort, your energy, your resources, your thought processes, it will likely to tell you what you're devoted to and what you're devoted to is likely the thing that you really love. Three things I want you to see from 1 John chapter 2. Number one, I want you to see the direct command. The direct command. John starts out with just a very blunt statement. Now, sometimes we don't like statements like this, but I'm thankful for them. John just says it matter of factly, do not. Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. Some people don't like the way this starts out, do not. Wait a second, pastor, this is another rule. This is another command. I mean, don't you know that rules uh, tend to rob us of joy and rules limit our freedoms and rules bring about great restrictions? I don't like rules. And yet the Bible makes it clear that all of God's commands, all of God's instructions, all of his rules, if you will, are for our good and for his glory. First John chapter five says it this way, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, when we understand that all of God's instructions or all of God's rules are not only for his glory, but for our good, we begin to realize God wants what is best for me. God has a perfect plan. God has a way that leads ultimately to his glory, but also my fulfillment in that. God has a perfect plan, and therefore his rules are given for a reason. And when we understand that his boundaries and rules or instructions are for our good, we begin to see them differently and understand that they are not burdensome. I remember being asked not too long ago, someone asked me the question, how can a good God give us so many limitations? That was the question. How can a good God give us so many limitations? And what they were talking about were the restrictions, kind of like the do-nots of the Bible, so to speak. And I turned around and asked the question, how could God be good if he didn't give us limitations and commandments and instructions? I mean, even in the context of our culture today, if a parent had a child, that the, that the young child completely unattended, without any guidance, without any directions, without anything, in our culture today, we would say of that parent that they were negligent. Right? I mean, if a parent sees little Johnny walking over to the lighting, the lighting fixture over there, walking over to the electrical outlet, and here he's already licked his finger, and he's getting ready to shove it into the electrical socket, I, I, I mean, a, a parent's not gonna sit back and say, oh, this is gonna be fun, let's see what happens. Now, some of you would, depending on the child. But anyway, I mean, like, no, 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 you'd be like, Johnny, no, no, don't do that. And, and there might even be discipline or consequences in that situation. The fact is, is that a parent who's responsible, who's actually parenting because they love the child and they want what's best with the child, they're going to give some guidance and directions and even instructions to help along the way. I remember when I was a child, I you know, I was a child and as a child you're not thinking about dangers around you. You don't you don't know that the electrical outlet is bad until you experience it, right? I mean, there's certain things you don't know. And I remember being a child and living in a neighborhood and there were some some kids across the street from me that were a little bit older and they had a basketball goal and I love sports and I I must have been 5 or 6 and I remember one day my mom was pregnant and I remember going to the sidewalk and looking across and my mom knew me. She knew my nature. She knew that I was mischievous and I know it's hard to believe but I was extremely strong-willed and I remember my mom saying to me loud and clear like don't you cross that street don't cross that street we lived on a road where people would move pretty quickly you know and but 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 don't you cross that street and so I was like yes ma'am yes ma'am I had an appearance of being obedient but I remember as a kid processing my mama can't catch up with me So as soon as my mother, who was pregnant with my little sister at the time, as soon as she just turned even an angle, just a slight thing where her face was away from me, I jetted off as fast as my legs could take me. And I do not know still to this day if she had a cape or not, but somehow or another, she beat me to the neighbor's house and beat me all the way back. But anyway, (laughs) I mean, Wonder Woman, it was amazing, right? Because she hated me. No, because she loved me and she wanted what was best for me. And she was teaching me. The, and to be clear, she didn't beat me, okay? I mean. <sighs> Mother, if you're watching right now, I'd have no idea. God says there's a command. Do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. So, first off, I want you to see what it means. What it means when God says, do not love the world. That sounds strange. Some people say, wait a second. That's confusing, Pastor. God says don't love the world, and at the same time in John three sixteen, it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So what does that mean? When you see the word world used in the Bible, it's used in three different ways. The first way it's used is speaking of the world as in the earth, all of creation. Psalm 24, verse one, the earth is the Lord's, all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Speaking of the physical world, so to speak. Secondly, when the word world is used, it's used to refer To the world as in humanity. All mankind. John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What God is telling us is for all mankind, all humanity, black, white, male, female, young, old, it doesn't matter. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all mankind. But the third use of the word world is the, third, the use that we have here in 1 John chapter two. This use of the world is referring to the invisible system of this world today that is opposed to God and is being ruled by Satan. Whether you realize it or not, we use this term world in many different ways even in our culture today. Think of it, it's referring to a system, an invisible system that has a specific focus, purpose, and agenda. Today we might say the world of sports. Oh, news in the world of sports today. So-and-so won the championship. So-and-so lost. So-and-so won the Masters. You know, In the world, it's an invisible system. It's made up of people, yes, but it's an invisible system that has codes and directions and rules and all those different things. Spiritually speaking, when the Bible uses the word world in this way, it's referring to the invisible spiritual system that is opposed to God and is being ruled by Satan. Jesus said it this way in John 12, verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world, this spiritual system. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This worldly system today justifies sin and normalizes it. This worldly system distorts the truth and this worldly system opposes God at every single turn. So what does John say? Do not love the world. Now how can you determine today When a person is in love, maybe you're here today and you're married and you remember those early days, way back when, when you fell in love with your spouse And one of the indicators of that was, frankly, you couldn't get enough time there. You wanted to talk to that person as much as you could. When you were away from that person, you told others about how wonderful this person was. And you spent your time and you spent your energy and you spent your resources into thinking about what you can do together and where you can go and all the things that you can experience. They became the center of your world. The fact of the matter is today we can largely determine who and what we love by what is the center of our world. In the same way, the things that we think on, spend time on, energy, effort, creativity on, and give ourselves to is a strong indicator of who and what we love. And so John says, do not love the world. Now now many people, instead of loving the Lord Jesus Christ above anything and everything else, they instead live a life of loving the world, some of them say, oh, I would never love the world. I would never love a system that opposes God and does all these different things. But the fact of the matter is when you study the New Testament, it's loud and clear that loving the world does not happen in one instant. It is a gradual process of decline. James chapter 4, verse 4 tells us that it starts with friendship with the world. Here's what it says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, listen, when you become a friend of the world, this system that opposes God, that condones and normalizes sin, that rejects Jesus as the Savior of the world, that says, hey, it's your life. You can live it how you want. Do whatever you want to. After all, just do it. You are your own boss. You are your own God. You can do whatever you want. If, if the fact of the matter is, when you become a friend with that system, the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 27, that it will stain us. We will be stained by the world. In other words, it will leave its mark on us. When we become a friend of the world, we begin to bring in compromises into our life. Well, I don't really need to be with God's people in worship today. There's, there's, There's something else I can do. I don't need to read God's word today. I got enough Bible time on Sunday. I don't need to really talk to God right now. I mean, I can just go talk to a counselor or something right now instead. But it's amazing how those little simple and subtle and seemingly insignificant Compromises often lead to others. We begin to justify things that we know are wrong. Or we draw lines of, okay, well, I know this is a sin, but let me get as close as I can over here before I cross the line. I mean, I know sex outside of the context of marriage is a sin against God, but you know, let me just, you know, just one foot over here is not that big of a deal. Well, I mean, I know drunkenness is a sin and God's opposed to it, but you know, I hold my alcohol pretty well, and so what's another? Not that big of a deal. And what happens in those moments is we begin to compromise and to compromise and to compromise. Why? Because we are showing signs that we are a friend of the world, that we are being stained by the world, and ultimately leads us to a place of loving the world. But, but he goes on a little further. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Now, now to, be under, to be clear, John's not talking here about the beauty of God's creation. He's not talking here about relationships. But he's talking about the things in the world, frankly, that vie for our attention and vie for our passion and vie for our energies and vie for our time, those things that constantly are warring at us to distract us from the things of God in our life. He's talking about the stuff that gets our attention. One of the wonderful blessings, and we have many wonderful blessings living here in America. But there are some challenges to that. Because in living in America that has been, frankly, so very blessed, it can be very easy to have a lot of stuff, or even to see all the images of all the stuff, that if we just get this, life's going to be grand. If we just get this, all of life's problems are going to go away. If we just have this experience, then I'm going to be fulfilled to my heart's content. We may not say that we love them, but by our actions, our energy, our time, our focus, our resources given, we show who and what we truly love. In our culture today, no doubt, possessions and gadgets, lands, houses, hobbies, vehicles, sports, all of it, apart from the eternal value of relationship that's established through those avenues, none of those things ultimately matter, and yet they take so much of our time and our attention. So maybe there's another way of asking that question. Here it is. Is there anything in your life that you would be angry or grieved over if it was taken away? Is there anything in your life that you would be angry or grieved over if it was taken away? What about your phone? (sighs) Your car? Your house? I mean, you'd just be furious of it. I mean, it would challenge you, it would frustrate you, you would be enraged. The fact of the matter is today, if there are things in your life they have a higher priority than your relationship with God. There are things that you, you pursue, you spend so much time and energy more so than do your relationship with God. The Bible is showing you there are some things that you love above the Lord. And the God's word says, do not love the world and don't even love the things of the world. Many people ultimately will miss heaven because they love the world and not the Lord. Matthew chapter 19 tells us the story of the young rich ruler. He was young, he was rich, he had everything he could possibly want. He had his future all before him and yet in the midst of all the possessions and all the wealth and all the different power and influence, he didn't have eternal life and he didn't have peace in his soul. So he came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, what have I gotta do to have eternal life? How can I inherit eternal life and know that my soul is saved and know that I'm living not for this temporary world but for the world to come? How can I have it, Jesus? And Jesus said, here's what you do go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. Now, was Jesus teaching, go make a bunch of sacrifices and that'll earn God's favor? No. Jesus just understood what the man really loved. And what he loved was his stuff. And the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 19 that the man went away grieving for he had many possessions. In other words, those possessions were not things that he used for the glory of God and the good of others. Instead, they were things that were using him. They owned him. And as a result, he left with grief and not with joy. He left with sorrow and not with salvation. Why? Because he loved the world and the things in the world. Well, that's what it means, but why does it matter? Maybe you say, man, pastor, this is written 2,000 years ago. What do you mean? Why does this even matter that I love the Lord instead of loving the world? Here's why it matters. John says simply this in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you're loving the world, in other words, you can't say you love Jesus and love this system that is opposed to him, that is rejecting him and persecuting all who identify with him at the same time. If you love Jesus, you're going to seek to honor him. You're going to seek to live for him. You're going to seek to glorify him. You're going to want your life, regardless of what the world is saying, you're going to want your life to to be pleasing to him. Instead, the world over here says, please yourself, do what you want, do your thing. The two cannot coexist. That's what it means. So who we love matters because you cannot love God and the system that opposes him at the same time, which brings me to the second point, and that is this. I want you to see the divine caution. The divine caution. Remember a moment ago I said to you that a responsible parent is gonna warn little Johnny about sticking his finger in the electrical outlet, right? My mother, she gave me ample warning, don't you run across that street. Well, God here now begins to give us a word of caution. It's a word of warning as we live here in this world. See, see the Bible says for you and I who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we live in this world, but we're not of this world. The Bible says of you and I who know Jesus that this world is not our home. We're just passing through because our home is in another world. Our home is in heaven. And so today, even though we live in a fallen, broken world, we're called to live for heaven. We're called to live in light of the world that is to come. And yet here we are. Go read John chapter 17 this week and learn about Jesus, how he prayed for us and our response and how we live in this world. Because we do live in a fallen world. We see the pressures all around us. We see the images all around us. We face the temptations all around us. And so God gives us here an incredible word of caution about the things in this world. What does he say in verse 16? Here's what he says. For all that's in this world this system that's opposed to God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world today is constantly trying to press us into its mold. Look like us, think like us, talk like us, act like us, believe like us. The world even promises that if you conform to it and if you do it, then you will know real happiness and fulfillment. I'm reminded even when I was a kid of the the old old beer commercial, the group of guys are gathered together on the top of the mountain and they're looking out and they're like, man, life doesn't get any better than this. And that's the messaging of the world. Like if you just experience this pleasure or this situation or this possession, then life's gonna be great. It doesn't get any better than this. But friend, I want you to know, if you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, oh, it gets a whole lot better than this. The world's constantly trying to pressure us in this mode with this promise. If you experience this, then you're going to be happy. But my good friend, John Keebler says it this way. Sin gives you what it promised and everything you never wanted. Sin gives you what it promised. Oh, it might be pleasurable for a moment. It might be exciting for a moment. It might feel good in the moment, but in the end, it will lead in bitterness and emptiness and it will rob you of that which is true and fulfilling. And it will continue to until you repent and turn to Jesus Christ. So three words of caution. He tells us here in the text three specific things that are in the world that, frankly, we experience at some level in our own lives. In fact, I would guess today, if you're living, moving, and breathing, and I hope most of you are because, uh, yeah, I don't have to call the morgue right now, but I mean, we're, we're living physically, moving, and breathing. If this is you, on some level, we battle with this. Number one, what are they? The lust of the flesh, He says it loud and clear, verse 16, all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. The flesh is referring to our basic human nature when we don't know Jesus. You and I, when we were born into this world, we were born in a fallen world. We were born with a fallen nature. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, we were born with a sinful nature. And that's why when you were a child, nobody had to teach you how to lie. When I was a child, nobody had to teach me how to rebel against my mother and run across the street even though she told me not to do it, okay? Like that was all me. That was my my little selfish, sinful human nature. So that's how we were born into this world. But when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you believe in Christ and say, God, forgive me and save me, I no need your grace in my life. I believe that Jesus died and rose again from the grave. So Jesus, come be my Lord and Savior. When that happens, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God begins to indwell us. And as a result, 2 Peter chapter one says it this way, we become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So we were born with this fallen, sinful nature, but when you believe in Jesus Christ, you're born again and you're given a new nature. Well, today that means there's a battle that goes on. Galatians chapter five says, so don't walk by the flesh, but instead walk by the Holy Spirit. Don't walk in the darkness, but walk in light. Don't walk like the dead man that you once were, but walk in the new man alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that in our flesh, God has given us several God-given desires that in and of themselves are not sinful. The desire for food, hallelujah, is a good desire. The, 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 the desire for, to drink, the desire to quench your thirst, it's a good desire. The desire for sleep, some of you need to stop practicing that desire right now. The desire for sleep is a good desire. The desire to share intimacy in the context of a relationship with someone that you love is a good desire. But the world instead begins to give us all sorts of images and all sorts of messages and all sorts of man-centered ideas that frankly whets our appetite to, 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 uh, to meet these desires in a time, in a manner, or in a process that is opposed to God's will. Let me illustrate it for just a moment. Hunger is not evil, but gluttony is a sin. That's the one the church likes to avoid, but that's the truth. Thirst is not evil, But drunkenness is a sin. Sleep is a blessing, thank you, Jesus. But laziness is sinful. Sex is a precious gift from God meant for the context of a marital relationship between one man and one woman. And yet the world does all that it can to bring us outside of that plan. And when we do, the Bible calls it a sin. It is the sin of immorality. In other words, the world appeals to the normal appetites and tempts us to satisfy them in ways that are contrary to God and his word. Friend, I want you to know loud and clear, you're not alone. Jesus was 100% God, and yet he was 100% man. Isn't it interesting that in Matthew chapter five, as Jesus is there in the wilderness, he's been fasting for 40 days, he's hungry, he's weary, he's exhausted, he's worn down, and here comes Satan trying to tempt him. The very first temptation that Satan brought against Jesus was the temptation against his own human desires. Here's what he did. He said, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones to bread so you can have something to eat? You know what he was saying in that moment? Look at you, Jesus. You're claiming to be the Son of God. If God was your Father, He'd be taking care of you. He'd know your needs right now. If you really are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread so you can eat and have something to eat. You'd be perfectly justified. Do it, do it, go ahead and do it. You'll be fine. Jesus, of course, understood that the enemy's attempt was to try to get him to sin against the father to fall therefore we would not have a savior and Jesus quoted the word of god and was victorious in that moment the simple point i'm saying is this is that the bible tells us loud and clear that the lust of the flesh is a part of the worldly system and satan uses it to basically take these natural desires and to inflame them into lust The worldly system under Satan's control does not care about you, your life, your marriage, your family, your future, or your eternity. So it lures, it tempts, it lies, and it pressures so that our flesh will be controlled by our lusts instead of crucified and us now walking by the Holy Spirit of God. That's why the Bible tells us in John six verse sixty three, it is the Spirit who gives life; for the flesh profits nothing. Romans thirteen says it this way: Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Second thing we see is this: knowledge of the lust of the flesh, but there is the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. He says, loud and clear, verse sixteen: For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, it's not from the Father, but it is from the world. Long before the song from many years ago came out called Hungry Eyes, we learned that our eyes from God's word can have their own appetites. We see things that are appealing, we allow the, the images that we've seen, we've allowed the thoughts that we had to continue to be entertained, we linger over them, and as we linger over those images, as we linger over those thoughts, it is not long before our feet and our heart follows. And friend, the world knows how to catch our eyes, doesn't it? Satan has absolutely zero new tactics. He's been using the same tactics he's always used, but my goodness, he knows how to market what he's selling. And people every day, pastors every day, take the bait and the lies of the enemy. It's interesting that our eyes can take in all these images and all these things, and then mentally we can envision all these different things, but the fact of the matter is our eyes don't fully comprehend the consequence. Our eyes see, our eyes send images to our brain, our eyes feed the thoughts that are within our mind, but our eyes don't understand the dangerous cost that is there as we continue to feed our mind. There are many ways that the lust of the eyes can influence us, but we must remember that while the eyes see what's appealing on the outside, they don't comprehend the end results. So let me give you three illustrations of ways that the lust of the eyes kind of wore against us. And they're biblical illustrations. Number one, think of Proverbs chapter seven and the way the man saw pleasure. In Proverbs chapter seven, the Bible tells that Solomon was looking out his window and he saw a young man and the young man was wandering out into the streets. And you get the, the understanding that he was wandering aimlessly. He was looking for something, frankly, that would satisfy the longing of his flesh. And so as he makes his way, he's walking throughout the streets. And finally, the Bible says, Here comes a woman. The Bible calls her an, a boisterous woman. She's frankly an aggressive woman. She's dressed in a provocative way. She talks in a provocative way. She describes her bed and her house. She describes the linen and the carved legs. She describes the, the spices and the smell of sweet perfume. And she basically makes herself available to him and she says, We can be together all night long. And the man feels desired. So the man likes what he sees. The man begins to allow images to, to be not only there in his eyes, but he begins to feast on them in his mind. And it's not long before his feet and his heart follow. Proverbs chapter 7, Sodom looks and he summarizes verse 22 to 23. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know it will cost him his life. When we allow our eyes to look upon those things of pleasure and we allow our thoughts to go there and we begin to feast on those things, I'm telling you, it will lead to death and destruction. Think of Eve in Genesis chapter three. She didn't see pleasure, she saw power there she is in the garden. And God had given them access and given them dominion over everything in the garden, but one tree. He said, don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they resisted, resisted, resisted. It was not even a temptation or an issue. But there in that moment, she got near that tree. And the Bible tells us that Satan was there and Satan was tempting and he was crafty and he was deceitful. And the Bible says that she said, oh, we can't eat of the tree because God said, we can't eat of it. We, we, we can't do that. And he tempts her and he says, oh, God doesn't want you to eat of this tree because he knows when you do, you will be as wise as him. You will see a know all things as him and then when she sees wisdom and knowledge and power that I'll have like God the Bible says this when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate And in the end result just like God had said hey in the day you eat of it there's going to be devastation, destruction, division, and ultimately death. That's exactly what happened. Removed from the garden, division between man and woman ever since, destruction of all kinds, and ultimately they did end up dying. There's a third thing that we see in the lust of our eyes that's a challenge for us today, and that is this. We have a lust for the eyes sometimes when we see possessions. aching. the Bible tells us in Joshua chapter 7, Joshua chapter seven, Achan was a, he was a soldier in the Israelite army and the, God had promised the land and God was bringing incredible, like impossible victories to the children of Israel. They weren't even having to raise, raise their weapons in some situations. They'd gone through Jericho and by literally walking around the walls and praying on the seventh day, shouting and celebrating, the Bible says the walls came tumbling down, they captured the entire city and then the very next day they walked into defeat to the smallest city of the entire promised land, the city of Ai. They're like, what just happened? How do we defeat the stronghold of Jericho and lose to the smallest people in the entire land? And God said, here's what happened. There's sin in the camp. So Joshua searches all throughout the Israelites. Where have we compromised? Where have we sinned? Just one man, just one compromise, just one sin had led to such, led to such destruction. God had told them when they went into the land not to take any of the spoils. Not to take anything from themselves because ultimately it was about trusting him and praising him for the victory. And Achan confessed in Joshua chapter seven, verse 21, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. Do you remember the end result? The end result is that Achan and his entire family were soon after that killed question I'm asking you today is what are you allowing your eyes to feast on? What are they taking in? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes are not from the Father, but they're from the world. Oh, but pastor, it's just this situation. Oh, pastor, it's just on the computer. It's not real. Pastor, it's just, no, no, no. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes are not from the Lord, but they're from the world. And finally, he says, the third caution is the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it is from the world. Pride can take on many different forms, from speaking and doing things to impress others, to keep up appearances or to simply think of yourselves better than you ought to think. Pride can take on many forms. Pride is at the heart of what took place in David's life. When David was at a time he should have been at war, the Bible tells us we kind of see many of these things all come together at one time. As he's on the rooftop and he looks out and he sees a woman bathing, he desires her. He has the lust of the eyes. It feeds the lust of the flesh. And so he calls for her. She comes to him. He lays with her. She gets pregnant. And and in that moment, you would think when he realizes his sin, that he would be grieved, that he would repent of his sin, that he would turn back to God. But instead, he gave to the boastful pride of life. I can cover this up. Nobody will ever know. I can outsmart God. He calls Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come into town. He feeds him. He even gets him drunk. Now go home, Uriah. Go be with your wife. He thinks he can cover this whole thing up, that God's not going to expose it, that nobody else will even know. But Uriah was a more noble and more honorable man than King David. David. Uriah said, no, I can't go be with my wife. My my men are at war. And so the Bible says that David wrote a letter personally to put Uriah on the front lines of battle. He knew he was sending Uriah to a death trap. Still, after Uriah is killed, David's still in his pride, thinks I can cover this up. Nobody will ever know. God will never know. It's all good. And it was until it wasn't. When God sent a prophet by the name of Nathan to go to David and said, David, In essence, you are the man that has sinned against God. The Bible tells us loud and clear in Proverbs chapter 16, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his life, but pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. There's a direct command. Do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. There is a very clear caution. Here's what's in the world. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I want you to see finally, in conclusion, the defining choice. If you're still with me, would you say all right? The defining choice. There's a contrast. Love the world or love the Lord. But we have a choice to make. Some might say, but pastor, man, I, I hear this, the, you know, this thing of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, like, Maybe you're sitting there thinking, man, that's impossible. We're all imperfect people. We're living in a fallen world and we'll never be perfect. Please understand this morning, I am not saying that a believer is perfect and never gives in to the lust of the world or the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh. I I am not confessing today and saying that a follower of Jesus never has a moment of pride. That's not what I'm saying. Sadly, in more ways than we wish, Even a follower of Jesus is impacted by this world. By the images that we see. By the pressures that we sense. By the messages that we hear. But one of the marks of a believer, a follower of Jesus, is this. It's not that we're perfect. But when we do sin, when we do stumble, when we do fall, There's conviction. There's brokenness. 1 Corinthians calls it a godly sorrow, and it results in repentance. Being a Christian doesn't mean, hey, I believed in Jesus and therefore I'm perfect. I never struggle struggle with what I've seen. I don't struggle with what I think. I never struggle with pride. No, being a Christian means I'm following Jesus that the Holy Spirit of God is within me. Therefore, when I do see something that's not pleasing to the Lord, when my thoughts do go in a direction that's not pleasing to the Lord, when pride begins to creep in and say, oh man, you did a great job. Look at how you did. Look at how amazing you are. When those moments happen as a believer in Jesus Christ, because my life is lived for him, my life is lived for his glory, for his honor, because my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Instead there's conviction and there's a godly sorrow that brings me to that place of saying God I'm sorry please forgive me of my sin. I'm sorry that I turned to that. I'm sorry that I fought that way. I'm sorry that I took the credit. God please forgive me and cleanse me. I turn from my sin and I turn back to you. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 was written to the believer, the Christian when it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why would God give that promise to the believer if the believer never sinned? But here's the sign of someone who's not following Jesus. Someone who's maybe even identifying as, oh, I'm a Christian. When they sin, if they're not a follower of Jesus, if they're not living their life to bring glory and honor to Jesus, when they sin, there may be a little conviction. But there's not a brokenness over it. There's not a sorrow. There's certainly not a repentance where they turn from sin and turn to Jesus. In fact, there's usually a justification of it, an excuse of it. I condone it. Well, that's what everybody does. All my buddies are doing it. In fact, the longer they continue to live it out, they begin to realize that sinning is not something that they stumbled into. It's something that in their life they're making ways for. So here's the question who do you love? John brings all this together to an end in verse 17. Maybe you're here today and and, and you just be honest and say, you know, Pastor Matt, like I'm that person, like I know the truth, I've talked about the truth, I've even professed to be a Christian maybe, but there's not a change in my life. And I remember at times when I would do things that were wrong, like there was conviction and at times there was sorrow, but man, that's been a long time. Like, Today I just do it and that's just what I do. And you're right, I even make excuses at times for it and I'm making ways for it. The first step to your deliverance and your change is to believe in Jesus. Be an empty religious work. Your first step, if that's you, is to believe in Jesus Christ and to accept him as your Lord and Savior. And if you do know Jesus, there's a second step. And that second step, is the title of the message. Keep on loving and living for Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter four, verse four, tells us this. Greater is he who is in you. That's you, follower of Jesus. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Therefore, Romans chapter 12, listen to this. By the mercies of God, I, I beseech you I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's the choice. John says it this way in verse 17. The world, you can choose it, You can keep choosing the world, but the world is passing away and also it's lust. But there's another choice. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Friend, I invite you today to love Jesus and live for him above anything and everything else. And frankly, it's the only fitting response when we consider that he first loved us. The question is loud and clear. Who do you love? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning, for this time together. Thank you for the ways that you speak to our hearts and lives. And God, I believe that you're speaking to us even now. I pray that we would respond with faith and obedience and surrender in whatever areas of our life where it's needed right now. And I pray it in Jesus' name